Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. Alright, so um, today we are going to be talking about what is known as the Golden Calf Incident, which is actually a pretty famous story. If you were to ask a hundred people, give me the top five stories of the Old Testament, they're going to tell you this, right? The Golden Calf and the Ten Commandments and Moses bringing them down the mountain. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot in here, actually, in the Golden Calf Incident, and it's a lot deeper than most people think. Uh, let me give you, a, let me paint a big picture of what we're going to talk about, and then we'll dive into some of the specifics. But the, the chapters 32, 33, and 34 pretty much encompass the golden calf incident and then the sort of uh, uh, the fallout and restoration. Here's pretty much the gist of it, and then we'll, we'll dive into the details. Um, the people of Israel get spooked. They get scared, and they begin to lose faith in, in God because Moses is out of town, and they just get freaked. And things get difficult, and you and I all know that when things are difficult and we're scared, what do we do? We spend money, we spend money and we, <laughs> we spend money, and we tend to be distracted by our fears and by our concerns. It's just it's what happens. And, and I want you to see the story today about the golden calf really as a story about people, humanity, but also God's mercy and his restoration. It doesn't look that way on the surface sometimes, but if you see the movement of the calf and then the smashing of the tablets and then the restoration of the tablets, it'll make a lot more sense. The gist of it is God's people lose faith, God tests them, and they increase their faith. Does that make sense? And if you don't believe me, every single person in this room, that's kind of just the way it works, right? Faith is always forged in suffering and struggle. And so... um, To grow up as a Christian, uh, to be mature in your faith requires, by definition, struggle. Because it requires us to refocus our lives on Christ, whom we always tend to want to put something else, like a golden calf, in his place. You with me? So far? Okay, so what I want to do is we've got a lot to cover. I'm going to go through sort of chunk by chunk. By the way, the, uh, the technical term for a chunk of scripture, anybody know it? Come on, anybody know it? You don't know? It's the, uh, the word pericope. Have I told you that before? It looks like periscope. And somebody once said that in seminary and everybody laughed at him. Uh, but the word pericope means a piece of scripture. So if I say our pericope for today, you'd say you're reading. But a pericope is basically an allocation of scripture. So we're going to break the text into those parts. Okay, so let's do the first six verses of chapter 32, and then we're going to talk about it, and then we're going to move on. So, I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, which there are copies of that in the back there if you'd like to make use of one. You are welcome to use your own translation. It won't match word for word, but um, anyway, that's what we're going to do. So, chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a carving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Let's stop there. What, uh, one of the things, what, the, 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 the issue at hand is this. As, you, as Father Gerder talked about last week, Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God on Mount Sinai and get the law. So Moses has left them. This is the same group of people that Moses had led out of Egypt. And it wasn't all that long ago, 10 months earlier or something. I forgot the exact timeline. But it wasn't really all that long ago that these people, these very same people, had seen God work, right? We went through all that, the Red Sea and all the plagues and things. So they see that Moses is gone and they begin to get scared. Now, I want to just stop and make a kind of a pastoral and psychological point here. That whenever we are put in a position of uncertainty, right, people freak. Is that fair? I mean, people just get spooked. I mean, we're always, religion kind of comes easily when things are good. But it's when things go bad, somebody gets sick or somebody gets cancer or somebody has a car wreck or something just sort of falls in, into your life which you hadn't planned for and didn't expect, the bottom falls out, right? And people begin to get scared. And that's precisely what happens here. The people you know, just like us, <laughs> the people should have known better. I mean, God had led them from Egypt and had taken care of them all along. They should have known better. And yet the minute that adversity occurs, they get scared and they say, we got to do something. In other words, what they really are doing is they're, they are taking, taking matters into their own hands and actually creating a false idol. But it's not entirely a false idol. This is the one thing people misunderstand about this text. They go and they make a golden calf, but it's not just a gold. It's not like they forgot about the Lord and said, oh, we're going to go with this calf instead. What they're actually doing is they're conflating the two. Does that make sense? So, so these, the, these Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years. They knew the God of, the, of, the, of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew he was distinct. They'd seen God prove himself in the Exodus and how he overcame Pharaoh. They knew that God is the only God. But <laughs> when, when things get scary, they begin to looking for something to come alongside of him. God and. And so what they do, just like we do, is they fall into the idols of their culture. Does that make sense? I mean, what do you do when, you, when, when, when something happens in your life? The first thing we tend to do, because we're just like these people, the first thing we tend to do is we try to find something to control the situation, and it's usually something out of our own culture. And what I mean by that is this. You might say to themselves, well, why, why a calf? Why a calf? Anybody know why? Um, is that, well, actually, no. Yes and no. A calf, and actually the calf was probably, people tend to think of it as a little tiny thing. It was probably pretty big. A calf, 
The, the word there is actually not calf, it's young bull. And so it actually, um, in ancient Near Eastern fertility cults, a young bull was a symbol of fertility and strength. And not only was it an animal that could be used to plow fields, but it's a, it's a symbol of vigor, right? Does that make sense? So what they're doing is they're actually saying, okay, we need something to remind us that God's in control. We need something to put our finger on that we can touch. Let's borrow one of the idols of the culture we came from in Egypt, and let's kind of like, let's kind of take that in and use it ourselves. Kind of like rock music in church, right? I mean, there's lots of examples of this where people take the cultural things we have and try to use them for the service of God. The problem is it's such a slippery, slippery slope. Let me show you. So for example, Aaron, who should have known better, right? Aaron is Moses's is older than Moses, but he's actually Moses' right-hand man, right? And next to Joshua. Joshua is the younger guy who eventually takes over. But Aaron is the guy who's put in charge. And the people get scared because Moses is gone. And they say, up and make us um, up. Uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 2. Up, make us gods that shall go before us. And he says, okay. How does that work in this culture? We make a golden image of something physical, and he makes the calf. He fashioned it with a carving tool. He actually, just so you know how this worked, it was actually a piece of wood, probably a pretty substantial piece of wood, that's covered in gold, um, what do you call that? Leaf. And the reason I know that is because he burns it later, and you can't burn gold, so we'll get to that in a second. But he, gets, he creates this cultural idol, which would have been familiar to them from Egypt, and from this ancient Near Eastern culture. And they take it and they try to make fashion Yahweh into that image. Maybe Aaron was actually pretty well-intentioned. I mean, people tend to read this story as Aaron just like, you know, went off the deep end and lost his faith. I don't think it's quite that, that, quite that cut and dried. I think Aaron's actually thinking, we just need something that can remind us of what Yahweh is like. And, if I, and so I don't think Aaron's actually trying to create an alternative idol what he's trying to do is create an alternative God and. Let me show you. Um, and look at this. So verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a carving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who did what? Who did what? Brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, what Aaron is saying is this golden calf is God, the Yahweh. Do you see that? And remember, the second commandment is what? The first commandment is that I'm the Lord thy God. The second commandment is thou shalt make no carved images, even of me. God. Does that make sense? And so, um, when Aaron saw this, uh, look at verse, verse 5. This is always stuck with me. Tomorrow, uh, when, all, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar. Okay, that's what you do to the God of Israel. And he, and he said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the calf. Oh no. <laughs> it says a feast to the Lord. And the people sat down to drink and rose up to play. There's two things going on here. There's the Jewish identity as God's people. And there's these pagan things that they're kind of sticking with it. A calf. And this, this expression here, sit down to eat and rose up to play, is a pagan, a pagan idea of basically a frat party is part of your worship. The, the pagans were notorious for great big parties that involved sexual licentiousness. That's not here. 
but they're close. Does that make sense, everybody? So what they're actually doing is they're making a golden calf, not to replace the Lord, but to actually come alongside of him, which is just as bad. Any comments on that or questions? And, and, and I challenge you, uh, think about this a little bit, because this is just human psychology. What are the golden calves that we put in our own lives? What are the things that we lean on? We say we believe in God, and we do, right? Everybody here does, I presume, believe in God. I do. But what are the things we also lean on that our culture says are the things that really get us through? And what might that be? Well, I don't know, family, money, uh, stuff, right? We all, we all do it. And, and my point is it's not quite as cut and dried as just Israel, you know, rejecting God wholesale. No. What they're doing is saying, God, but on our terms. Any comments on that? Is that a different way to see it? Yeah, Bob. They, that's a good, Bob's question is, why would they give up, or I'm surprised they would give up these things for this idol? Well, but I think that just goes to show you how fearful they were that Moses was gone. In other words, their faith was really shaken by being, because now everything they've known, Egypt is behind them. They're in a desert. They're in the wilderness. There's no water there unless God provides it, which he does. And now Moses, who's been their focus, is gone. And they're scared. And when people are terrified, I mean, literally terrified, you know, golden earrings, hey, if that's what it takes, sure. So I think that's a good, that's a good point. I think maybe your, your, your observation shows the level of fear and uncertainty caused by Moses' not being there. Um, let's look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, this is so fun. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And, he, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, stubborn. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation out of you. I never picked this up until I was studying for this text. Um, When God says, okay, it sounds like God is being temperamental, do you think? Right? Like God should maybe cut him a little slack. But actually what he's doing is he's, he's actually testing Moses. And here's how I know that. Remember, who, who had made the covenant with God that made God's people his covenant people? Do you remember? Abraham. Remember the covenant God made with, that God made with Abraham? And we talked about cutting the, 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 the bull, ironically, in half. And the, peace, and the God walked through the middle of it. And God said, I will make my covenant with you, Abraham. You and all your children shall be my covenant people, right? But look at what God is doing. God is actually testing Abraham with this. And here's how I'll prove it to you. Look at verse 10. Um, Let my wrath burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you, Moses. Now, wait a minute. Moses has got to think to himself, hang on. Hang on, God. Because remember, all the Israelites have... Moses is the key to the whole thing. And Moses, Moses is the one being tested here. The, the covenant is not through Moses. The covenant is through Abraham. And now God is saying, I'm going to wipe these guys out, and I'm going I'm to, like, like with Noah, I'm going to start all over again. And with you, Moses. But Moses says, wait a second. 
It's actually God. Remember, all the Israelites have, have kind of just kind of lost their faith, lost their focus. And God is now actually testing Moses to see if he'll do the same thing. Moses, how about if you step in and take, take over? And look what Moses says, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? This is not, this is not Moses reminding God. It's Moses saying what's true. Is that clear? It's God testing Moses to make sure he's got the faith because Moses is the, is the linchpin here. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? God, why would the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them out to kill them on the, in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember the covenant, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will, multiply, I will multiply your offering as the stars of heaven, and all the land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster. Let me just make something really important, an important statement here. God does not change. Right? Whenever you see, it sounds like, and there's a couple of examples, Sodom and Gomorrah is another one, where God is pleaded with, and it looks like God says, you know, you're right. That's actually the, the exact worst way, the wrong way to see it. What's actually being here is God is actually testing Moses to see if Moses is going to reiterate the covenant that God had made with him. Because remember, all the, Egyptian, all the Israelites down below have kind of walked away from the covenant. And what God is saying is, Moses, can I rely on you to keep this? Can I rely upon you to remember the covenant that I made and the terms, even when things are really scary? Is that clear, everybody? No? Okay. And so what's really going on here is, hey, Moses, how about if I try this instead? And then Moses says, no, 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 God, remember, remember what you said. You promised us that you were going to provide for us from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And look what happened. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing in to his people. So let me just stop there and make a, a, a pastoral observation that um, it doesn't take, when, when people are turning away from God, when people are fearful, which they will be, you will, know, you will be someday and so will I, when people are fearful, it doesn't take a whole lot to turn, to bring people back. All it requires is to be reminded by somebody don't forget, God's got this one, right? All, but the reason God is testing Moses here is because he's going to send Moses down to bring these people back. But he's got to make sure that Moses has a clear understanding of how this covenant stuff works. Does that make sense, everybody? Am I confusing you? I feel like I'm confusing you today. Any, any questions? Yeah, Jim. Well, it's not. I agree with you. But there's little tiny hooks in there that if you know what you're looking for, you can find them. And it... Yeah, it does, it does look a lot like Aaron just sort of, hey, thanks, pal, right? I can't. Well, he is actually, he is held, he is held accountable, and he, he tries to lie his way out of it, but of course, God knows better. And, but, he, but he repents, which is different than a lot. We're going to get to that in a second, because what I've never noticed before this either is that, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. There's a repentance that comes along with Aaron when he realizes the mistake he's made. But, I, but again, I think the point is to see in Aaron not, oh, come on, man, you chickened out, what a weasel, but really more to see that Aaron actually is a reflection of all of us, right? We're all, 
we're all, when we're in a struggle and we're in uncertainty, you know, we tend to look for something to give us comfort rather than just really just leaning on God and being reminded of his covenant with us through Christ. Yes, Nancy. Get rid of them. Yeah, that's a, well, that's a, that's a really good point Nancy makes. You know, at this point, you're, you're, maybe Moses is wondering, man, you know, God, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> Let's get rid of you. This has been, this has been a hassle all along. He's in his mid-80s. He's tired. He can't be in a... Yeah. So that's a really good point. But again, it all does come back to, remember, God had picked Moses because Moses was a faithful guy. And he had strong faith. And this, and this idea that even though Aaron has rejected God and Aaron has fallen away, Moses uh, doesn't. And we're going to see in a minute, Moses actually prefigures Jesus very strongly in what he does. But I'll get to that in a second. Um, let's move on. Um, verse 15. So Moses is talking to God, and God says, God relents from just wiping him out. Because God was just going to kill him all with whatever. He says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Moses, go down there and handle this. So verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain. That means his focus shifts from God now to the people. With the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that are written on both sides, in the front and on the back, they are written. Um, the Ten Commandments are on two tablets, right? Unlike that great scene from uh, Monty Python's History of the World where he says, I bring you 15, and then one crashes. Ten, ten Anyway, the Ten Commandments, this is how this works. The Ten Commandments lay out a covenant, right? They're written on the front and the back, and they're probably not very big. Maybe the size of my iPad, right? Maybe this big, right? So they are... And, what the, and they're actually identical. We tend to think of them, because they do this a lot in churches, that one through five are on this one, and six to ten are on this one. Right? That's not true. All ten are written on both. They're duplicates. And that's important, because what, what the Ten Commandments are is a covenant. I will be faithful to you, Israel, if you keep these ten rules. And the way you would do a covenant in the Old Testament just like today, is one party gets a copy and the other party gets a copy, right? So your mortgage, when you signed your mortgage agreement, right, or your whatever, your car loan, that's a covenant. It lays out terms of what will happen. You get a copy, a signed copy, and the other member of the contract gets a copy. You with me? Does that make sense? So Moses goes down with both copies of the covenant, God's copy and the people's copy. Sorry about that. I'm not sure I like, like this thing, actually. Um, he goes down there, and verse 16, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the camp as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war. Of course Joshua thinks that. He's a soldier. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. That's Moses. And as soon as they came near the camp, and saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burnt hot, to Nancy's point. And why? Because Moses is a man who loves God. And he's faithful to the covenant, which we just saw a moment ago. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. That's important. That's where they are. And took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, right? Because it's made out of wood, covered with gold. Ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. There's a lot going on here. Why does Moses smash the Ten Commandments? Is it, just to, is it to smash the idol? No. The idol is not damaged by the tablets. That's what I quite, kind of always thought. 
Why does God, why does he take both copies of the covenant and smash both of them? Why? The covenant has been, in, has been violated by the people's behavior. That's exactly right. The covenant, now God reestablishes it in a moment, but Moses is just so furious, he takes the tablets of the covenant, the promises God had made, and he smashes it at the foot of the mountain, where they are, to show them, you guys have broken the covenant. And the covenant between God and you no longer stands. That's the imagery here. And then he takes the, and this is even, and then, to make the point, God takes the calf, the golden calf, and he burns it up. Right? I, guess you, if you, I guess if you just put it in fire, the wood would burn and the gold would melt off of it, I presume, right? He takes it, he burns it. Why would you burn, a, why would you burn an idol? Why would you burn anything? To destroy it, right? Just to completely obliterate it. Uh, you completely obliterate the idol, and then he takes the gold, the leftover stuff from the idol, and he crunches it up, and he puts it in their water supply, and makes them drink it. Why do you think? What happens to solid food in the human body once you consume it? Where does it eventually go? Into the sewer. That's, what's go- that's the imagery here. Moses is saying, we're taking these idols which you have formed, I'm going to utterly destroy them, and I'm going to put them into the sewer through you, Israelites. That's the image. I mean, this is, this, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, look, anybody who thinks the Bible is not earthy, it doesn't have, not write the Bible. I'm serious. And, uh, and so, that's, so God, the covenant is broken, right, with Moses smashing the the. Uh, covenant. He then makes the people drink their own poison and the water the, into the sewer through them, which is kind of a remarkably creative image, <laughs> in my view. And then Moses deals with Aaron. Look at this. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people, verse 21, what did Moses, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them, Aaron? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people and they are set on evil. Come on, Moses, man, you know. Verse 23, For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Right, it's ridiculous. It sounds like a two-year-old. Now actually, bear in mind one thing. Um, before Moses came down, God had already said what happened. If you notice way back when they're up in the mountain, Moses couldn't see down below. God says, Moses, I got some bad news for you. They're down there. They've created a golden calf. They sacrificed to it. So Moses already knows what's happened. It's kind of like when you catch your kids doing something wrong and you know it and you don't tell them you know it to see if they'll tell you the truth. Ever do that? Oh, yeah, I've done that. It's a lot of fun, because they do crazy things like this. They make excuses. Dad, I didn't do it. It just popped out of the oven that way, you know? Um, but, but notice something here. What, what Aaron is actually claiming is not a deliberate intention to defraud. He's kind of claiming, well, I, you know, it wasn't my fault. But look what happens. And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, um, okay, so Aaron he dealt with. We'll get to Aaron in a second. And... Um, then let's go into this. Now, God, Moses dealt, deals with Aaron. Aaron, what are you doing, man? You've, what, why have you betrayed God? And Aaron says, well, I didn't. It kind of popped out of nowhere. And Moses says, okay, I'll deal with you in a minute. And now Moses is going to deal with the people of Israel. I'm gonna, most people aren't aware of this part of the story. 
Um, verse 25, And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Now there's about, I don't know, 100,000 people there probably, total. Um, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around them. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on the side, each of you. The Levites are... Uh, will, later, will later on become the descendants of the tribe of Levi, the smallest tribe. Oh, sorry, that's Bethlehem. Beth, uh, the Levites are a tribe of Levi, one of Joseph's 12 sons, who later on become the priests that sacrifice animals in the temple. We'll get to that later. We'll get to that another day. But the Levites are the ones, the tribe of Levi, Levi comes to Aaron. We're with them. And uh, we're on the Lord's side. And, and verse 27, And Moses said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you from the tribe of Levi, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and kill each of you, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. The Levites become the, the priests each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Um, let me show you what's going on there. God, so the people of the Israelites, there's a whole bunch of them, right? And they're, like anything else, there's people who are active in something and people who are sort of complicit bystanders, right? Is that fair? So when you have, a, when you have something go wrong, there are people that are actively engaged in deception, and there's some people that just kind of go along with it. God, Moses says to the Levites, who's just a tribe, get your sword and go through, the, go through the camp and interrogate everybody in the camp. Find out who the idolaters were, the people that gave the gold or that refused to repent and kill them. Now you say that's extreme, but we'll get to that, we'll get to that in a second. So the point being, actually, what, what has just happened, I would submit to you, is actually it's merciful. Because remember, God originally was going to say, I'm going to wipe the whole kit and caboodle out. And what Moses, what the Lord tells Moses to do instead, it says here, the Lord told him to do this. Go through, find the, the uh, conspirators in this uh, insurrection and kill them. Now, they were given the opportunity to repent. Mo Aaron is not killed from this. The point being, the ones who are put to death are the ones who are the recalcitrant idolaters. Is that clear? Why is that so? And it, people, to a modern person, that sounds extreme. Okay, uh, Maybe it sounds extreme to you. Let me just point out something to you, which we're going to begin to see from now on in. Whenever the nation of Israel is put in the midst of another people group, they tend to, just like us, assimilate their gods. Right? And so remember, the nation of Israel's mission is far into the future. The nation of Israel's mission is to do something, and that is to produce Jesus Christ, who will die on the cross for the salvation of all humanity. So the point being, Israel as a nation must survive for any human being to have any hope of heaven. Is that clear? So while it might seem extreme that God commands, in this case, people that are going to lead the culture astray to be exterminated, it sounds extreme to us. And from a Christian perspective, it's not permitted. New Testament does not permit that uh, death for um, 
uh, idolatry. But the Old Testament does. And the reason is because God has a little tiny group of people, right? A little tiny tribe of people that are out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, surrounded by people, Canaanites and Hittites and all these other groups, that they're going to conquer. And if they don't learn, if they don't learn now to stay away from, their, from the other culture's idols, those other cultures will, will consume them. It's kind of like the church, right? I mean, seriously, it's no different than today. The church has, in a lot of places, caved into the culture. This, in my opinion, is the problem with all of Western Europe, frankly, and, and a lot of the United States, a lot of America, frankly. Um, and it's just, God's people tend to, if we're not careful, assume the cultures and the values of the culture we live in. In this case, it is for the salvation of humanity to be possible, the Israelites must survive. So to have a group of people that will threaten that is why God commands death, essentially. Is that clear, everybody? And we'll see this again and again when we get to Jericho, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Same thing. God says, kill everybody in that town. In fact, when you, when you go to Jericho, you don't even settle there. You go to Jericho, the walls tumble down, you destroy everything, you don't take anything from it, you kill everything, every man, woman, child, animal, hamster, everything is destroyed to wipe out that culture so that that culture doesn't come back and seduce Israel and destroy them later. In other words, it is, it is, it is necessary for the salvation of the world that Jesus exists and be, and be made manifest. Any comments or questions on that? That's sometimes a pretty tricky one for people. I want to make sure that I, I cover that. Jim? Well, I mean, I guess these are uh, people who are not believers, or even if they are semi-believers, they don't... I mean, I think a good question is, how can you justify genocide? Yes. I guess that's the answer. Genocide would only be justifiable if, in so committing genocide, you're actually saving those who are being killed. It's the only way it's justifiable. Put it this way. When we get to Jericho, which is a, another really earthy story, um, the only way, morally and ethically, that murdering a culture would be if by murdering that culture, it provided for the only person that can save those people from being, to be born. Does that make sense? To me, it holds together logically. Um, but any, is that a tricky... I mean, if you've got questions, raise them, because that's a, that's a big issue... And it's important that you're clear on why it's diff. It'd be different if, if God said to Father Chris, go out and obliterate Vero Beach. That would be ridiculous because Christ has already come. For the, for the people that were, i put it this way, the people that were the ones, the 3,000 that were, were killed by the Levites, okay, those 3,000 people, for them to have any possibility of being saved eternally, Christ must be born and die for them, right? Okay. If they are permitted to live... That, the, the, that, that might not ever occur. Is that clear? Tom, you got that one? Okay, good. It's logic, and it's, not, it, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, but it actually does hold, hold together. Did I answer your question? Anybody else? Someone had a, a hand over here. Um, okay, so, and actually, I want to get into this. Uh, what, after, after the uh, Levites come through and destroy those who were the unrepentant idolaters, okay? So these are people that refuse to repent. They are put to death. Why? It's the second commandment, okay? And in fact, if you fast forward to Jesus, when he comes on the scene 3,000 years later, 
uh, and he's walking around and he claims to be God, what do they, th- they threaten to do to him? And what do they do to him? They kill him. Why? Because, because idolatry, blasphemy, is punishable by death in the Old Testament for that very reason. That's a good question. Did, have they, her, I'm going to repeat it. So, Tom, um, uh, that's a good question. So, uh, your, 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 uh, your question was, since the Ten Commandments had not yet been given, how could they have known that creating a false idol was wrong? Punishable by death? Well, uh, the, the punishable by death part isn't yet there. You're right. They knew, they knew that they were a people, even in Egypt, they were, and all, all through the history of the Israelites, they were a people distinct from everybody else. Right, so, and creating, a, creating God in any kind of an image was wrong. Presumably, it would have been part of the oral tradition that they had. That's a good question, though, actually. Um, but presumably, somehow they knew. God is not going to hold them accountable for something they couldn't have known. I'd have to actually go back and look at, get you some specifics. But um, all throughout the Jewish Israelite history, even up to now, they knew to create a God in any sort of an image would have been went sinful. Um, Yes. Anybody else? And so, okay, so let's go into... Um, he, now, now Moses turns his attention, verse 30, to the people. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and I, now I'll, I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, listen, to this is a great scene. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. So remember... God said, Moses, go down there and take care of this. And then Moses goes down and sees it and comes back and says, you know, God, you were right. They have made for themselves, themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, if, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the, did you see what he just did, that, did there? Um, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Anybody have a different translation there? Who, who else has a different translation what verse 32 says? Anybody want to read it for me? Who's got a King James? What's that, what's that, what does verse 32 say in the NIV, Lee? The Almost the same. Okay, the idea, what Moses has just done, did you see it? What Moses has just done is said, Lord, forgive them their sins, what they've done, which has been, which is grievous, but you can, if you would rather just blot me, who's the only righteous one out of all of them, blot me, the only righteous one, out, send me to hell for their sake. This is Jesus. He is offering himself as a substitutionary payment for the people. Do you see a parallel here? I hope you do. He's the only righteous one. And the reason he offers himself is because he's a righteous one. And he knows that the right thing to do is to, you know, better, greater love has no man than he lays on his life for his friends. Jesus tells us this. And Moses actually prefigures the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross with that very expression. Lord, forgive them their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book of life. Destroy me and to save them. Whoever has sinned, uh, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, um, that's what God says, but now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. The reason that's repeated is it's a Jewish device of uh, replication. 
The point I want you to see here is despite all of this sin and brokenness and retribution that God visits, it's actually measured. He doesn't wipe out everybody, but only the ones that are unrepentant. And then you see, even in the midst of all of that, you see a messianic figure, God bless you, beginning to emerge. You see a, you see a type. Remember I told you when we started this class, one of the great things I want you to see in the Bible is that there's narratives that repeat themselves over and over and over again? Well, here's a biggie. And that is that one man, a righteous man, dies for God's people. We see it down the road with Christ on the cross. You guys see it? I hope you do. It's pretty obvious, actually. That's that's an obvious one. Any comments or questions on there? Um... Let me take any, anybody have any observations or anything you want to add before I jump in? Paul. Well, if someone didn't explain to you what you're unpacking, I would, you know, just from reading it, I wouldn't get it. Wouldn't, it wouldn't jump out of you. It's there. It's right there. When you look, if you read it slowly and you read it with a commentary and some uh, people that have made, pointed these things out, it's actually, uh, it's right there. If you, um, if you look at a, read a study Bible too, sometimes they'll put in the little notes, the ESV English Standard Version Study Bible, which I happen to think is very, very good, uh, will make these sorts of observations. By the way, bing, here's something to look out for. So, by the way, what we're doing is actually called, I've mentioned this before, it's called Biblical, sounds redundant, but it's actually an important thing, Biblical Theology, which basically says that the Bible has themes that run throughout the entire corpus of the entire thing. And there's, th- there's themes that repeat themselves over and over again. And all of those themes, every single one of them, every single one of them, finds their conclusion with Christ and his cross. Every single one. Right? I mean, look at, look at baptism in the Christian tradition. It is, it is crossing through the water to go from being, uh, right, like, the, like God delivering us from the Red Sea. It's, it's things that repeat themselves. It's pretty cool. Okay, we're never going to make it all the way through this, but let's, let's jump in. Um, so let me, let me kind of give you a background, of what, <clears throat> excuse me, a background of what goes on here. God sends his people, um, let's look at it. Then the Lord, verse 33, chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's that covenant again. Saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those are the people that live in the promised land, but Israel's got to wipe them out so they can live there. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What is God saying? He's saying, okay, I'm, re- I'm, I'm going to remember the covenant, even though the Ten Commandments have been smashed. We get new ones in a minute. What? But God is saying, the covenant I will honor. Do you see? He, and the way I know that is, look at he says here, the land, which, the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to keep my end of the bargain in that covenant. Go. Right? So after all this unfaithfulness from Israel, God says, you know what? I'm going to keep my end of the bargain because I'm a God who keeps covenant, even though you, Israelites, don't. But I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to... I'm going to, I'm going to my relationship with you is going to be different. And here's what happens. Um, up until now, God would go before them in a, in a fire, right? Pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. Now, God goes with them in a little bit of a different way. What God now does is the people, when they travel, Moses builds, it's called the tent of meeting, or meeting tent is what it really is. 
and a meeting tent is, and we'll get to this in a second, when the people are gathered in their camp, ordinarily, up until now, God was present among them, right? In the cloud of the fire. Now, the tent is over here. And the Ten Commandments go back, the reissued Ten Commandments go in it. And if you have a question of God, Moses is here, the intermediary. People come to Moses, ask him a question. He asks and comes back out and tells you what God says. So the point being, God has not abandoned his people, but there's distance there. Is that clear? And we can read through it, but I mean, if you look, um, the tent of meeting is created in verses 7. Um, uh, in verse 11 here, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, would not depart from the tent. So Joshua keeps guard over the tent. And then, um, chapter 34, I just want to uh, get through this. We have some time for questions. Um, chapter 34. Verse 6. Um, actually, you know, let's back up at one thing. I want to show you. Um, let's, let's go back up to uh, chapter 32, verse 12. This is an important one. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. So God goes to, Moses goes to God in the tent and says, I need some help here, man. This is a little stressful for me. These people are ornery and contentious. For crying out loud, you can't even stand to be around them at night. Neither can I. God's in the tent of meeting now at night outside the camp. Um, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Moses is saying, God, you know, you've got to deliver. Chapter, verse 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Let me explain to you what's going on here. God is saying, I'm not going to go with you when you go to the promised land. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of run you uh, remotely. And Moses is saying, well, God, the only way you're, we're different from everybody else is if you're with us. Which is actually a really strong thing to say. In other words, God is saying, Moses, I'm going to send you to the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, the promised land, modern Israel. People already live there, but you're going to take care of it. But I'm not going with you. I'm going to do it from here. And Moses is saying, isn't, isn't in, in verse 16, but is it, not with, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, God, if you're not present with us, we're not really worth anything. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing which you have spoken, I will do. God says, Okay, I'll go. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. This is so incredibly profound. Um, when you... Everybody in this life... What's the, what's the meaning of life, right? <laughs> what's the meaning of life? Everybody in this world, every, every, every human heart is... Uh, always in a state of wanting something more. Is that fair? And it could be all different. Maybe it's a new guitar. Maybe it's a better marriage. Maybe it's kids that are better. We always want something more. Um, 
there's a great, oh, Verizon has a great, um, uh, oh, Verizon Wireless used to have a great ad, and they would say, the next big thing. I love that. It's the, it is the entire condition of every single human heart. We're always striving for something. Even Moses, God, you've got to go with us. And this is the really, this is a verse which few people ever really notice, but it's profoundly important. Moses said, um, God says, Moses, I'll go with you. I will protect you. And Moses says, you know what, Lord, all I, want, all I really want is you. Please show me your glory. I mean, that's, that's really profound. God, Moses' entire worldview, he's beginning to, Moses is beginning to see that the whole point of life is to see God. Isn't that profound? And um, boy, you know, what, and, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, this is a place. Look at what God does. So Moses says, God, all I want to do is see you face to face. I just want to see what you look like. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you couldn't ever see God. To see God was to, you'd be obliterated. And so when Moses says, God, all I want to see is you. Moses knows if he sees God, he's a, he's a goner. But he's so committed to wanting to see God, who has led him through all this crazy stuff. He says, all I want to see is you. And Moses, and God says, Moses, I know you do. I hear you. But you can't see my face because if you see it, it will... Um, you will not live, right here, verse 20. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That sounds like God is saying, Moses, man, I'm not going to deal with you. It's actually on the exact opposite. What God is doing is saying, Moses, finally you get it. <laughs> the whole point of life but I'm going to, but because I love you, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to cover you so you don't get blown away. When you, you can see my back, but you can't see my face. Have you ever heard this verse before? Is anybody, ever, anybody familiar with this? It is really, really, really profound. It is supremely pastoral of God. When Moses says, I want to see what you look like, God says, I can't do that, but I'll show you my, you can see the back of me, whatever that means. And that's, how, that's the extent to which God, Moses ever sees God. It is true when he goes into the tent of meeting, he speaks to God, right, through a theophany, and Moses' face shines when he comes out of the tent. We skipped over that a little bit. But in this case, Moses actually gets, wants to see him. In other, words, in other words, I guess at the end of the day, every single person in this room, uh, at, the end of the, at the end of your days and mine, God willing, or God being my helper, that's what you're going to want to see, right? You're going to, you know what? I've spent all this life wrestling through and dealing with trouble and dealing with Israelites and dealing with struggles and all these things. All I want to do is see God's face. And, of course, like I keep telling you, all of these promises are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, right? Where, in fact, humanity, human, human beings are able to see God. Not as, I mean, God and man in a hybrid. In a, so... Let me stop there. And then, just to wrap up the thought, and we'll take a few questions. And then after this point, Moses makes the new tablets, the new stone, the Ten Commandments are given again, the exact same ones. And um, Moses, if you look at chapter 34, verse 11, 
Moses brings the Ten Commandments back to the Israelites because he smashed the first set. And he reestablishes the covenant that God has told him is going to reestablish. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care. This is an important verse. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare to your midst. The entire story of the nation of Israel is them falling into the cultures in which they go. God brings them somewhere to show them a place where they can live and be happy and flourish. And the entire story of the Old Testament from here on in is about them being faithful and then backsliding. (laughs) And being faithful and backsliding. And being faithful and being backsliding. And we're the same way. People of Israelites are no different psychologically than we are. Right? Just that the, just that the, well, the covenant's a little different, but it's, anyway. Any comments or questions? Has this helped you? Any, has anybody got a different perspective here on this? Go back and read it again. It's not, there's not a whole lot there. Go back and read it again and see the progression. God gives the covenant, right? Um, or was, gives the Ten Commandments. He, people break the covenant. God is merciful. He wants to wipe them all out, but he doesn't. Moses stands in the gap, prefiguring Jesus. Um, justice is served. Uh, the Levites um, remove those who are unrepentant, and then the covenant is restored. It's a great big circle, actually, if you think about it that way, these two chapters. Yes, any comments or questions? Well, Jim. It's pretty, uh, Moses is pretty distinct in instructions about how to behave. Yes. Whether they're in the promised land, they can't do it. They can't do it. That's right. Well, that's, we can't. I mean, we can't either. That's, that, that's actually the problem, is that the... And, and actually, the... The, the great outlier here, the sort of the, the implied question throughout the entire Old Testament, which again is answered by Jesus on the cross, is God has made a covenant with his people. The covenant says, God says, I will be faithful to you even if you're not faithful to me. If you're not faithful to me, there'll be consequences because you've chosen to walk away and do stuff which is going to be negative for you. But the, the, the difference between these people and you and I as Christians is that the covenant is between God the Father and God the Son. And so Jesus dies and keeps the covenant, the new covenant, we call it. The new covenant isn't between God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's between, Ab- it's between God and Jesus, who is the son that, of David that's promised. It's kind of a little complicated, but actually, well, anyway, does that confuse everybody? Anyway, I'm sorry. Paul? Well, Aaron walks away without getting his head chopped off. The, the, the Levites go through. The Levites go through and kill all the people that are not repentant. So presumably, Aaron, uh, Aaron comes around. You're right, it's not explicitly stated, but it's implied, I guess you'd say. Anybody else have something? Yeah, Bob. God became, God became merciful when he, from the very beginning, he is merciful in that he doesn't, initially God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out. That's what they deserve. Right. Here's the difference. That's a good point. And this is, again, a biblical theology idea. In the old, okay, your first point, when does God become merciful? Well, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, he doesn't wipe them out. He says, you, I'm going to cast you out. We talked about this. Cast you out. You will have pain in childbirth. And if you're a woman, <laughs> and men, you will labor all your days and will your, your, your work will be hard. 
right? God says, you're gonna, you have caused your own suffering and problems, but he's merciful and he allows them to go. He actually clothes them, if you remember. He puts clothing on them and sends them out. So God is actually merciful from the very beginning. The difference is with the New Testament is that, um, and I talked about this just last week, that when the, the justice required for sin, the payment for sin, in the Old Testament is paid for by the people, in the New Testament is paid for by Jesus in our place. So what makes, what makes a Jewish person good is what they do. What makes you and I good is what Jesus did. It's actually what we do, but we can't do it. So Jesus does it in our place. Does that mean? It, it does all hang together. It's all consistent. It's just that the focus shifts from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that the person who is the person, me or you, in the Old Testament would be the one who has to be righteous, and if we're sinful, then we, we bring God's wrath. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I'll take it. Just like Moses did, actually. Right? I'll take it in their place, and he does. Oh, it's all over. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all the way through. I mean, God, um, yes, it's all the way through. Again, the Old Testament, everyone says, well, the God of the Old Testament was mean and the God of the New Testament was nice. Nonsense. The difference is the, the, the object of God's wrath shifts in the old, from the Old Testament, which was the people. In the New Testament, the object of God's wrath shifts to Jesus, who is actually God. So God takes the wrath upon himself. Right, because, and the reason, it, that's a good point. Why are we not obliterated by seeing Jesus in the flesh? Because Jesus, Jesus makes us worthy by his, de- by his death in our place. The, I, the, I'm telling you, the, if you read scripture, just read scripture. And with the, with the idea that the cross is the crux of the entire matter, it all makes sense, quite frankly. So the cross is the crux, get it? Anyway. <laughs> Anybody else? Are you learning something? Uh, so go back and reread it again, and uh, maybe it'll stick in a little bit better. And, uh, and, I, and I hope one thing I'm also trying to impart in all this is the Bible holds together. It's really earthy, uh, and it's a lot deeper than just kitty stories. Um, and, and it all points to Jesus. All right. Let's so we close in prayer. Lord God, again, we thank you for your word, which uh, comforts and challenges us. Uh, we thank you for your word, which holds together. We thank you for your word, which points to Jesus. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for his death on the cross in our place to make us whole and to restore us to you, to make us worthy to see your face. Um, All this we ask and pray and thank you for in his name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.